We are currently in a sermon series through First and Second Samuel that will into the, go into the school year. Today our passage is First Samuel 17, and rather than asking you to stand, it's a pretty long passage, so I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and remain seated for the reading of, of the scriptures. Um, I'm going to be reading portions, and I'll try to, if you're following along in your Bible, I'll try to let you know when I'm skipping certain passages, certain verses. But I'm going to begin with First Samuel um, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11 is where we'll begin. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Demon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew, in line of, drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Goth, whose height was six cubits and a span. Verse 8 says, He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, if I, and the Philistine said, if I defy, he said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And skipping to verse 16, it says, For 40 days this went on. And so clearly the army's getting ready to run out of supplies. And it says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, he said, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Skipping to verse 20, it says, And, and David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep with the keeper. And he took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment. Verse 23, it says, As David talked with his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Goth, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Verse 26, it says, And David said to the men who stood by him, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 31 says, When the words of David spoke, David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he went before him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered, him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear 
will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Verse 40, it says, David with his sling in his hand, and he went, David went before Goliath, his sling with it was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts and to the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. When the Philistines arose and came and drew near, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. May God richly bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to hopefully explain this passage today in a different way. I pray that you would help us to understand how to read the Old Testament so it really becomes alive to us and it says something to us more than what we often think. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, we read the passage, but the reality is probably most of you already knew it, right? Uh, this passage stands alongside some of the most well-known passages, the most well-known stories in all the Bible, such as Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den, and Jonah and the great fish. In fact, it, even when people have, I said this last week, even if somebody has never read the Bible, they're probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath, the passage we just read. And we just read that Israel's at war with the Philistines once again. And what they're fighting over, I, want, I, I would like for you guys to put a map up. You have it in your, your bulletin, and hopefully these maps are helpful to give you kind of context for where these things are happening, what's going on. They can put it up on the screen too. What they're fighting over here is access to a place called, place called the Valley of Elah. And I've made that in a, in a straight line. Obviously, this valley is winding and twisting, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's represented by the line that runs east to west. All right? And to the right, you have Bethlehem. That's where David, David's father sent him from. That's where David grew up. And then Goth is over on the left, bottom left, and that's where Goliath is from. All right? Now, Ekron, I wrote this map. I put this map together earlier in the week, and we're not even going to get to Ekron today, so you can just disregard it for now. But this valley runs east to west, and on the top, on the north side, you've got an eye representing Israel's army. And then just below this valley, you, there's a P representing the Philistine army. Okay, so that gives you kind of a context of, of where this battle... And you can go, and they know... You can go visit Israel today, and you can go exactly where this battle was fought. They, they know where this battle was fought. 
So what's so important about the Valley of Elah is that it was an ancient and lucrative trade route that, that runs east and west. Remember, Israel's full of hills and rocks and cliffs and ravines and what have you. It's not easy to, to, to cross. And so they're fighting over this, this, uh, this, uh, this ravine, this valley that, that's a smooth, smooth to walk through um, because, um, because it, it provided a lucrative trade route to, um, that runs east and west to the, to the, that reached the Mediterranean Sea. Therefore, they could trade and, and their trade would reach Africa and Asia, Arabia, and even Europe. And, and here's the thing, without this trade route, the Philistines knew that Israel would never thrive as a nation. That they would be isolated into economic poverty. So that's what this is about. Not only that, if the Philistines can, can capture this valley, if they're able to take control of this valley, they can split Saul's kingdom in half and isolate the tribes and then attack tribes one at a time. So it's, it's a very strategic place that they have to have to survive as a nation. So they're at war. And three of David's older brothers have enlisted in Saul's army and along with, with everyone else, they are camped on the north side of this, this valley. They're camped across from the Philistines who are camped on the south side. And what we have here is, is a standoff because everybody knows that, that once the fighting begins, it, 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 there's no turning back. And everybody knows, regardless of who wins, both sides are going to su suffer severe casualties and lots of people are going to get killed. And so they're, they're, they're having this standoff. And so what the Philistines are doing is they are proposing what was commonly known in the ancient Near East and commonly practiced as, as, as a term called single combat. And that's where in order to avoid a lot of heavy bloodshed in order to bring a, an end to the standstill, the stalemate, each army would provide a single warrior to represent the whole, and, and they would participate in a duel, and then whoever lost would surrender. Okay, that's the idea. Now, obviously, we know at the end the Philistines didn't surrender, but what do we expect from the Philistines, right? So for 40 days and 40 evenings, this Philistine giant has come out um, and he is, he's come out to challenge Israel. Um, um, they sent out their most feared warrior, Goliath, who stands between six and a half and eight and a half feet tall. He's covered in massive amounts of armor and weaponry. I mean, if there's ever been an intimidating figure, he is, he is certainly one of them. And every morning and every night, Goliath would come out, he would insult Israel. He would curse the God of creation and he would challenge somebody to come to a fight, but, but nobody would come out. Now when David finally arrives with, with the provisions for his brothers, when David finally arrives on the scenes and finds his brothers, Goliath's at it again. And his size and his brutality and his cruelty was at the center of everybody's attention. Everybody was terror, terrified. They were paralyzed with fear. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary, says that everybody had what he calls a Goliath-dominated imagination. Everyone except that is David, who he says had a God-dominated imagination. <laughs> and David was incensed that no one would fight this giant. Not only that, David hears this conversation going about that there's some kind of reward for anybody who will go and fight and win. 
that whoever fights this giant, if he wins, will receive a lot of wealth, social status, and the king will give him one of his daughters as a wife. Now, and word gets around that, that David's willing to fight this guy. And once David is summoned to King Saul, he says to him in verse 32, he said, let no man's heart fail. Because of this giant, your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Now at first, Saul refuses. He said, listen, David, you're just a kid. You're just a, you're just a boy, and, and this giant's been fighting since he was a kid. But somehow, David convinces Saul to let him go. And everybody knows the rest of the story. David kills the giant, cuts off his head, and returns and brings it back to Saul. Now, I am firmly planted in, in the community of people who believe in the Bible, who believe in the authority of the Bible, believe in the historicity of the Bible, but I have to admit that there has always been a part of me that has been a bit suspicious about this story. That There's just something about it that, that has never made sense to me. And, uh, and it was this. If there is an agreement... If the agreement was that the army of the defeated representative would surrender, then why in the world would Saul let some kid go out and fight on behalf of the army of Israel when he thinks that he doesn't have a chance of winning? I mean, it, 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 it makes Saul seem like some sort of buffoon. And I'm like, it, that just never made sense to me. Until finally this week, I finally found the answer in a book that Robin Young gave or lent to me. I'm not sure yet, but we'll find out. I'll, In the ancient Near East, armies were made up of three different kinds of warriors. The, the first warrior was a, a cavalry warrior, uh, somebody who rode a horse, all right? The, the next type of warrior were infantry warriors who fought in hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords and spears and, and had armor, and so, like Goliath, right? Goliath is an infantry warrior, all right? And then the third kind of warrior is what they called projectile warriors. In other words, and, and sometimes they were referred to as slingers, people who threw slingshots, who threw rocks and stones and, and, and metal balls. And uh, in the ancient Aries, armies had these three kinds of warriors, and these slingers were, were an entire infantry of them. And these slingers were able to fire projectiles up to about 110 feet per second. And um, so uh, it, it required an extremely, extreme amount of, of skill and practice, but in an experienced hand, it was a devastating and actually a very accurate weapon. Um, because they were able to sling these stones about 110, mile, 110 feet per second, um, in terms of stopping power, it was more than enough to um, penetrate human flesh or even a human skull. It's similar to having a small handgun. In addition to that, because slingers fought at a distance and had armor, had no armor, they were incredibly agile. They were mobile, especially when they were compared to somebody who was an infantryman, like Goliath. So while David doesn't have any military experience as a shepherd, he has proven himself capable of uh, quite skilled with a sling. 
And therefore, he is quite capable of killing this uncircumcised Philistine. You know, it is clear. And, and so that's why Saul's willing to send him out. And, and it's clear that, that Goliath, along with everybody else, was expecting Israel to send out an infantryman to fight this battle. But David has absolutely no intention in engaging this guy in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But rather, he intends to fight Goliath the same way he learned to fight wild animals as a projectile warrior. And as David approaches, Goliath speaks to him with this, this vile contempt. But when David pulled out the sling, Goliath had to have been absolutely shocked. And no one watching from either side of the ridge, on either side of the valley, would have considered David's victory to be all that improbable. Because everybody knows that from a distance, slingers beat infantry, hands down. As I said a moment ago, we know how this story ends. David defeats the giant in this incredible act of bravery. So that's the story. And if you were here last week, if you weren't, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. If you were here last week, you heard me say that one of my objectives in this sermon series is to teach you what is called the art of biblical narrative, the art of interpreting biblical narratives. One of the goals in this series is to teach you how to read Old Testament stories so that they, they explode with their ultimate or their true meaning of what they're really about. And that's what I want us to try to do this morning. I want us to look at this story from three different perspectives, all right? First, we're going to begin by looking at it from a psychological perspective, and then we're going to look at it from a spiritual perspective, and then I want us to look at this from what is called, and what I think we should be, from a biblical perspective, all right? So let's begin with the psychological perspective in which, way, which this story is often understood and looked at. Now, years ago, I read a, an article by, in Psychology Today. It was written by a, a gal by the name of Angie Levon, who is a, what she calls herself a resilience coach. And her coaching is designed to help her clients thrive in, in adversity and to accomplish their goals in life. And the title of the article was Seeing is Believing, The Power of Visualization. Listen to what she writes. Mental practice can get you closer to where you want to be in life. And it can prepare you for success. It's been found that mental practice can enhance motivation, increase confidence, improve motor performance, and prime your brain for success, all of which are relevant to achieving your best life. While your future may not include achieving a great physique or becoming the heavyweight champion of the world or, or winning the Masters tournament, mental practice still has a lot to offer you. Begin by establishing a highly specific goal. Imagine the future. Imagine that you've already achieved your goal. Hold a mental picture of it as if it were occurring to you. Imagine the scene as in much detail as possible. Eliminate any doubts if they come to you. Repeat this practice often and then combine it with meditation or some sort of affirmation such as, I'm courageous, I'm strong, I'm like Muhammad Ali, I'm the, I'm the greatest. Now, this was a, a secular article published by 
by, by psychology today. And you're probably thinking that I'm going to stand here and criticize something here. But I'm not. I basically agree with what Angela Vaughn wrote in that article. I believe that having a positive attitude, that visualizing your success, I believe that eliminating doubt significantly enhances your ability to succeed in life. I believe that. I believe that those who believe that they will succeed will do so far more often than those who doubt. So I, I, there, I just couldn't find anything in the article that I disagree with. Now, I have no idea whether Angela Levon is, is a believer or not, but I will say this, David, David was doing every single thing that she suggests. Look at verse 36 with me. He says, I've killed both lions and bears. So he's looking to the past. He said, I've killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. So he has a positive attitude. He's filled with self-talk. He's eliminating doubt, and he's visualizing success, just like she says. And it seems to me that if, if mental practice helped to prepare David, it seemed to me that mental practice did help David to thrive in his adversity and to accomplish the goal that he had of defeating Goliath. So, I agree with Angela Levon, all right? But the fact is, we're Christians, so let's look at this story from a spiritual perspective, all right? It seems to me that while David did have a positive attitude, while he did visualize his success, while he did eliminate doubt by self-talk, it appears that he also, and I think even more importantly, needed, he knew that he needed the power of God to accomplish th this task. I mean, David wasn't just simply trusting in his own abilities to psych himself up, but rather he was trusting in the Lord to deliver him. Look at it with me. Remember when David was talking to Saul? He said, listen, I've killed lions and bears, and I'll kill this Philistine as well. But ultimately, David acknowledges, look at with me at verse 37, he acknowledged that it was actually the Lord who delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. David acknowledged that it was actually the Lord who would deliver him from the hand of the Philistine as well. And then when David is standing before Goliath, look what he says. Beginning in verse 45, he says, You come to me with mighty weapons, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. The God of the armies of Israel whom you had defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And that, he, and that he saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You see, that David's confidence is in the Lord. David knew that if he was going to succeed, that ultimately it would only, because, it would only be because the Lord was with him. So, here we have looked at this story from a psychological perspective, and we have also looked at it from a, from a spiritual perspective. And, and I, I believe all these things are important. But, but here is how this story is almost always applied. It'll be said, listen, what we need to do is we need to be like David. We need to place our faith in the Lord. We need to trust that He will deliver us from our enemies. We need to trust that he will give us victory over the giants in our own lives. And then the story is often 
um, be coupled with verses like Matthew or like Mark chapter 11. This says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Or Matthew chapter 17 where it says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. Or James chapter 1 where it says, we must ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts must not, oppose, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And, and this is how this story is so often applied by preachers. And there's, there's a lot of truth in this. And what, what the preacher is hoping for is he is hoping that you will go out inspired. He is hoping that you will go out and face your personal giants with the same kind of confidence that David did. And here's the thing. If you ever hear a preacher preaching like this, you should go out and never, ever return. I'm going to explain why. Again, let me say this. I believe in the power of positive thinking. I believe in the power of visualization. And even more so, I believe in the power of faith. I believe in the power of God. And there is a very real sense in which we should look to David as, a, as an example of morality, as an example of faith. There's a very real sense in which we should not allow ourselves to be paralyzed um, by cowardice and fear. But if that is the primary purpose of this story, if that is all David is... <coughs> If all David is is a simply an inspirational example of faith, then the message that, that, that we preach about this, think about this. If that's all the story is to us, then the message that we have to offer is nothing more and nothing different than that of a, motion, of a motivational speaker like Angela Vaughn. They're the same message with a little spirituality added to it. But it's still the same message. The same message with a spiritual twist. And then where does that leave us when the victory that we're hoping for eludes us? Where does that leave people when, when we say to them, what are we supposed to say to them when their personal Goliath says, you're fired? Or what do we say to somebody when, when their personal Goliath is not responding to chemo, chemotherapy or radiation? What are we supposed to say to somebody when their personal Goliath has successfully alienated them from their own children and they feel hopeless? And I pick, your, pick, the, pick the difficulty. Listen, there is no question at all that we should look to David as an example. We are, there's no question at all that we are all called to place our faith and our trust in the Lord like he did. But we have to understand that when, we're, when we are reading historical events that have been recorded for us like this in the Old Testament, we have to understand that we need to look at them more, we need to look at them from more than just a psychological or a spiritual perspective. We've got to understand that there's a far greater purpose for this passage. We've got to understand that David is more than just a moral or spiritual example 
for us to follow. And what we need is not necessarily only a psychological perspective or a spiritual perspective. What we ultimately need is a biblical perspective of this story. So let's talk about what that looks like. This story is about a people who are fighting for a better life. For themselves, for their nation, for their families, for their loved ones. But they are paralyzed by fear. They they are feeling hopeless. And they are afraid to die. Now this story is also about a king who has been appointed by God who is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a story about a king who comes to fight for his people. This is a story about a king who delivers his people from an enemy who has paralyzed them with fear. It's about a king who achieves a victory on behalf of the people of God. And yes, there is a reward in all of this for David. But along with his victory comes freedom, comes economic prosperity, comes blessing, comes salvation. Along with his reward comes a reward for all of God's people. It comes for everyone. You see, when we read these Old Testament stories, we got to remember that they are not primarily about us. In what we must do, but rather they are primarily and first and foremost about about the coming Messiah and what he must do. Remember last week we saw that Jesus himself told us that the Old Testament law and the prophets, in other words, the Old Testament scriptures were, were pointing to him. While David is an example of positive thinking, while he is an example of spiritual faith, he is first and foremost an example. He is a picture, he is a foreshadow of an even greater and more powerful and more righteous king. He is a picture, he is is an example, he is a foreshadow of Jesus. The one who would ultimately deliver his people from the greatest of giants, the greatest of enemies. And remember this, Jesus didn't win the battle by slinging a rock, did he? Jesus did not win the battle through the death of an enemy. But rather, Jesus won the battle by laying down his own life. Jesus won the battle through the death of himself. And that's That's how we are to understand this story. That's how we're to read the Old Testament. I'd like the worship team to come up. This is going to be a short sermon, right? Earlier we sang this song, and I noticed in it, we we, we declared this together before we even, before I began to preach. We sang how deep the Father's love for us. And remember what we sang, and we're going to sing it again. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. 
But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. His wounds have delivered me. His wounds have provided me the reward that I so desperately need. And that is the one we are here to worship. Amen? Amen.